Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Ian Rickson. I'm a theatre director. And welcome to my podcast, What I Love. In all the time I've worked in the theatre, I've been lucky to meet some extraordinary artists. In this series, I speak with some of them in the silence of an empty theatre stage and ask them about three things that they love, a song, a film, and a piece of writing. I'm looking to discover why we especially cherish certain things and how we reveal ourselves through the things we love. Chiwetel Ejiofor's most celebrated performance has been in director Steve McQueen's film 12 Years a Slave, about Solomon Northup's experience kidnapped in 1841 and sold into slavery in Louisiana. Speaking about his casting back in 2013, Steve McQueen said, Chiwetel was always going to be Solomon for me. I was looking for someone that had that genteelness, that kind of humanity. I needed a person who could actually keep hold of that, even through situations where it would be tested to its absolute limit. He was the only person. Whether he's playing drag queen Lola in Kinky Boots, or band leader Louis Lester in Stephen Polyakov's television drama, Dancing on the Edge, or in his many theater performances, Chiwetel always brings that humanity and so much more. He and I met in the height of summer at the Young Vic Theatre. So I'm on stage at the Young Vic Theatre with Chiwetel Ejiofor, and I'm amazed I am on stage with you, Chiwetel, because I know that you don't especially like interviews. You don't really like talking about yourself you want to just bury yourself in the work (laughs) and also you probably get asked to do so many interviews podcasts and so much more so I just feel so grateful you're here and um, hopefully talking about things you love and other artists is rewarding and fortifying particularly at this strange time absolutely it is I was really thrilled that you asked me to do this, actually, and uh, excited to talk about, you know, these things and to talk about them with you. I mean, do you think there are people who prefer to talk about themselves and people who prefer to talk about other things and the kind of ventriloquism of revealing yourself when talking about something else is something I certainly do. Mm. And maybe you're similar because when you're propelled with autobiographical intrusions and you've just done an amazing film what are you doing are you acting the part of Chiwetel in an interview Uh, how much do you reveal all of that must be really complicated yeah I think it is complicated I think that part of my artistic life is about exactly that duality is about what you reveal and how you use art as a form of self-expression you know and I think that that's always been what appealed to me about being an actor was always that you could actually 
discuss in depth things that you were feeling, thinking, yeah. emotions you were having, but behind a kind of mask yeah. of somebody else's words, somebody else's scenario. But I feel like it's always about self-exploration to some degree. So what's that like in this strange liminal lockdown period? Because I don't really know who I am when I'm not doing the thing I feel motivated to do, to direct actors. Mm. And if you're not exploring that infinite self through the work and you're not doing lots of acting, is that a release, a relief, or is it strange and existential? I think that there's a hope that this particular period is very sort of temporary. I mean, I know it's been going on for a, a few months now, but that the sense is that, you know, things will move back into a certain direction. And so for me, I think that I was curious about, about exploring what else is out there for me. What else do I think about when I'm not acting or when I'm not writing or when I'm not directing? And, and that is... Um, exciting you know and it has actually given me an opportunity to readjust to rethink about where my full artistic priorities lie who am I beyond some of these things um, have I changed dramatically from when I started you know there hasn't been a moment really for me to evaluate those things and that in a way that has been fruitful I guess to take stock and to understand yourself as a person and as an artist you know in a slightly deeper way because you haven't really stopped for about 20 years, have you? And no. that's because you generated such a range of amazing work. So maybe if the universe is permitting you this breath to really refuel and regenerate, and you just said to me, you've moved out of London for a bit, you're in New York at the beginning of lockdown. Yeah. Perhaps that's just what you need. Yeah, I mean, things were moving just very quickly before lockdown, I guess. There was a lot of work to be done and there was a lot that was happening and a lot that I was trying to make happen. And uh, it was really interesting to feel that none of those things could progress because I felt like a sense of failure, you know. I felt like, oh, I've not been able to make these things work and happen and I need to get these things, I want to express these things, I want to get them out there and... And I realized, obviously, that there's absolutely nothing you can do. And accepting that was more of a process than I thought it was going to be. And it made me want to evaluate why I felt that I'd personally not done something right, that I wasn't able to get things made during a pandemic. <laughs> you know? So it was kind of an interesting beginning for me to start to understand that actually maybe it is important to slow down a little bit uh, and to just evaluate where you are yeah sacrifice stillness mm. reflection they can be scary things when you create professionally to create a meaningful life so I want to talk about music mm. first who controlled what music you listened to when you were a child, like who had access to the cassette deck or whatever it was, the stereo, mm. um, what was being played, what did the five-year-old Chiwetel enjoy? Well, I think that my father was, because my father was a musician as well in, in Nigeria, as well as a doctor, and so he had a great love of music and uh, of the kind of singer-songwriter. 
he was always playing Bob Dylan and Paul Simon and Leonard Cohen, and he just had that great love of lyricism, you know. And uh, and then there was all the, the the African influence, and so the high life music, and just a certain kind of joyfulness, you know, and a way through struggle that um, that really appealed to him. And so, in a sense, that was my first connection to the sort of world of music. You know, I remember my parents coming home from a Paul Simon concert when I was a kid, and, and they were just sort of humming the tunes, and were still in it, you know, were still at the concert. I must have been, you know, five, six years old. Was it the Lady and, Smith Black? Yeah, the Lady Smith Black Mavos, yeah, Graceland. I think it was actually the Graceland concert. And... Um, we were living in Forest Gate and they came back and they were just full of all of that energy from the concert. And, um, you know, many, many years later, I was in Los Angeles and I was at a Paul Simon concert. And it was about halfway through the concert that I realized that I was the same age as my father was when he went to the Graceland concert. <laughs> you know, exactly the same age. And that's the beautiful thing about music, about that kind of continuity, all those circles, you know, that you can sometimes connect generationally to the same artist, to the same songs for sort of completely different reasons or sometimes precisely the same reason. That was an amazing thing to realize. You know, so my father was sort of invested in music in that way for his frame of mind, sort of educationally as well, the understanding that there's so much wisdom in, in music, so much understanding in the poetry and lyricism. Um, I think that's where I kind of fell in love a little bit, you know, in the early sort of time, my very early formative period of performance or, or what that could do, you know, and then you're introduced to this whole range of music and uh, all of these sort of styles of music, styles of sound and how they hit you and how they connect to you. And, you know, it's powerful. It's a powerful time when you're young and you're first discovering the power of musical sound. Yeah, it's like... When you feed an infant, there's a theory that if you can get nine subtle tastes of something like ginger mm. or cinnamon or broccoli that you might want your kid to eat, if you can sneak those nine in early, it kind of forms their palate and mm. they can be, have an open palate and they don't become a finicky feeder or whatever. And I wonder whether the neurons and synapses of young Chiwetel get really formed by, on the one hand, these poet singers, Dylan and uh, Leonard Cohen, and then you've got, I don't know, Felicuti and Afrobeats. And there's something about that fusion that helps form all sorts of pathways for you as you develop your own taste. Totally. And the sort of tutoring of the father. And like, would he say, I'm now going to put on this, have a listen? Or would they just be oral yeah, background? Yeah, no, I think it would just be in the, in the atmosphere, yeah. But that's true, and I think that there was something about when music does certain things to you emotionally, just in your self. And Felicuti hit me in a completely different way than, say, the singer-songwriters, because it's the music that gets you. He communicates so extraordinarily with the music itself. I think Felicuti was the first time that I would hear a bass or I would hear some of the funk as well as the jazz, and I would have the same feeling as if I just heard this, these brilliant lyrics put together, you know, that you would you sort of understood, you could feel the music in you in a sort of different way. And so you understand that drama of Felakuti's musicality is so powerful um, that it takes you on its own journey. And obviously the fact that it has politics. And politics that I didn't really know 
I, I wasn't aware of until much later, you know, but you could sense that it was reaching beyond the music and the sense of enjoyment into a real conversation about life, about how to approach life, you know, which is definitely, I mean, obviously, Nigerians of my parents' generation, I mean, this was their bread and butter, you know, this was their life. So you're in Forest Gate and you're drawing from those Afro beats. And over in Muswell Hill, maybe a decade later, is Michael Kiwanuka. And he's of Ugandan ancestry. And so many of his songs, and we're going to look at the one you've generated, which is Love and Hate from his second album, seem to be about not belonging. And he seems to really draw beautifully from going into his inner life and feeling caught between one sort of ancestry, and he's talked about going to Uganda and feeling like he doesn't quite fit, and then he dropped out of the Royal College of Music because it just felt too white and too posh. And it feels like it's a very keen-eyed place for an artist to be in that liminal space, not quite belonging, and how beautifully it seeded his work. Totally, yeah. And so you chose Love and Hate. I imagine you could have chosen many of his songs. Mm -hmm. why, why that one? Well, there's a lot of things. I think that there's something about his, you know, I love his lyrical quality anyway. But there was something about his voice when he sings Love and Hate that it was like meeting an old friend, you know, <laughs> that, that you just hadn't seen for a while and that you were just very, very comfortable in the space of that you understood the person very intensely, very closely, and you felt free to communicate intimate, maybe difficult things. Um, so as soon as I heard the beginning riff of the song, and then he comes in, sort of the vocal presence of it, that's how I felt, that sense of being with somebody I knew very well, who could communicate very clearly, feelings that I also shared but maybe couldn't express as well. I find that in a lot of his music, actually, that I feel like I didn't necessarily have to know a lot about him to know that we shared some commonalities, you know, and certainly commonalities, not just in the kind of African, but also in just in attitudes and ways of looking at the world and ways of feeling either included or excluded and the ways of feeling the kind of nature of understanding and the emotional resonances, emotional pains, and um, they're felt to be in, in the orchestration of that song and the way that it was presented. It really sort of summed up a lot of that 
for me. And I think he's an incredibly gifted artist and is growing as well in strength and reach in a way that I find personally very, very beautiful to, to watch and to listen to. So, you know, when asked the question, you know, who was I kind of engaged with right in that moment when you asked me, you know, I was just like, well, that's who it is. And to say nothing of the fact that I introduced my niece and nephew to the song, and now they will not stop singing. <laughs> and it's really, really beautiful, you know, and they love us all singing it together. Yeah, so that was the reason, really, all of those reasons. You know, I just think he's a very special artist. I agree, and I love some of your offerings there. For example, the tone of his voice, which seems to be able to encapsulate a plaintive, soulful feeling, yet there's that kind of break in the voice that feels so defiant. Mm. That chorus of Cold Little Heart, mm. which is bleeding. He just uses the word bleeding. I mean, what sort of breathtaking lyric or genius, really? <laughs> and this one, you know, it begins with, it could be you, couldn't it, preparing to do a play. Standing now, calling all the people here to see the show, calling for my demons now to let me go. I need something. Give me something wonderful. Mm. And he's taking very simple language and putting it in a form that has just beautiful eloquence to me. Yeah, I think I may have yeah, said that every time without knowing the lyrics were ever made. You know, that may have been somewhere the mantra that I'd always gone through, that I'd always sort of felt. That feeling is so deep and resonant and is so true of, of that need and that want to connect uh, that desire to understand people as well, to go out and to feel community and to know that somewhere in community is the release that you've always been kind of longing for because that is love in the end and that's why you're there, you know, ultimately. Yeah. Then this chorus, you can't take me down, you can't break me down, which, again, with such simplicity of execution has this rousing musicality that's so uplifting. Mm. And the thread in this conversation about performance and acting and whether you have to draw from demons and then the unity that you just described of connection, there's a paradox, isn't there? Because you have to break yourself down to act. You have to lose a ton of weight, for example, in The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. You have to draw from all sorts of things that might be the raw material of which might be quite vulnerable and then you sort of metabolise it and then you make the work and that's sort of in the lyric there for me as well mm. so I can see it's almost like Chiwetel wrote these lyrics <laughs> I wish <laughs> yeah there's definitely this idea that you have to face all these demons face all these fears as an artist and um that's part of it. And then also you have this world that is just not operating at a frequency that you can fully understand or that is fully allowing you to embrace what you believe to be the real purpose, which is the love, the poetry, the sense of connection that you can have with other people, which is why I love that lyric, you know, love and hate, how much more are we supposed to tolerate? Yes. Because that's exactly where I sit sometimes. You know, how much more of this friction are we supposed to put up with yes <laughs> you know? and uh, and I just love the way that it is encapsulated in those two lines and 
And also exactly as you said, the fact that his voice kind of reaches for something and you feel like you want to go there with him, you know, it's wonderful. I think that place you're feeling into to do with the lyric of love and hate and either being overwhelmed with feeling, the sort of flooding of engulfment, or as we look at the other work soon, a kind of denying of feeling, a kind of hiding, a kind of numbness. So the feelings, if you like, the twin existential threats we all face of engulfment or abandonment, and at the centre of it, this sort of reaching for love, Mm. connection, attachment. And even those things have their dangers. You can love, but then you fear rejection. But there's hope in the song. I mean, there's not only hope in the way that it is such a spiritual song, but there's a belief, you know. I believe that she won't take me somewhere I'm not supposed to be. It's a really important part of that song. And I think that there is a kind of fundamental sense of faith in there that is, um, that is the only way to navigate these waters. So I do feel uplifted. I know why my niece and nephew, who are six, you know, why they connect to it, because they also feel uplifted and empowered by the song. And so. so like your father with you, you're providing the next generation with access to all this profound work, and they're singing it back to you. I mean, are you consciously going, OK, listen to this, or are they hearing it in the car, or...? I was actually, you know, I was, I was playing the song. On know. the guitar? Yeah, on the guitar. And so then they just got into it, you know. I love and, that. Uh, and so, <laughs> so we still started singing it together. And then I wanted them to hear it properly, you know. Uh, and so we did that. And then it's been, they're always requesting it. And so then when I see them, then they sing it back to me, you know. So it's become that kind of dynamic, you know. But I think it does touch them in a deep way. And they do sort of, they can't articulate it, obviously, but they do feel what I feel when they hear it. And Michael Kiwanuka, you mentioned Dylan, you mentioned Leonard Cohen. He chooses the guitar uh, as his instrument. Mm. He draws from a kind of heritage of um, those singers and Bill Withers, yet he's somehow so contemporary. I love him. Thank you for allowing me to go deeper with his work. And I want to hear that version of the, with the niece and the nephew, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. It was really interesting when you talked about the love and the hate and flooded with feeling 
when we come to your next choice, which is the film Il Conformista, The Conformist, directed by Bertolucci. It's so profound about trauma, failed attachment, and how that can be recruited into a kind of fascism. And I've never quite seen a portrait like it in a film where a director, and he was a Marxist, Bertolucci, looks at his country, Italy's own past in the 1930s, and offers to the audience, this is how someone could end up so detached from connection, love, feeling, and turn into a shadow of a man. And it was a really surprising film to receive from you because I don't really know where Bertolucci sits in the canon, but it's amazing to watch. How did it come up for you? I hadn't watched a lot of Bertolucci's films growing up, but you know I was very aware of his work and obviously Vittorio Storaro, the cinematographer, and his work and Apocalypse Now and so on. And I think people had talked about Il Conformista, but it was one of those films that I didn't, it just wasn't necessarily on my radar particularly. Um, and then at some point I decided to watch the film, you know. And I think my relationship to cinema changed after I'd watched it. I just, I don't know if you can watch the film and be the same entirely as you were before. I think it is a transformational bit of cinema. For anybody who, who loves cinema, for anybody who's engaged in cinema, uh, I think it hits on so many different levels. And I think that it's bravery and it's boldness and it's politics and it's um, intensity, as well as it's staggering beauty and craft, are um, on a different scale, a different level. So it's very rare that a film comes, you watch a film and it immediately goes into like the top five films you've ever seen, especially, you know, after you've watched a number of films in your life and really intensely looked at film. And I put it up there with the best of the best. I mean, it's sort of hard to know where to start with this film, but it's, um, I think it's a, a staggering piece of work. He was quite young when he made it, and the two of them, and I think Storaro is, is as much as part of the film as Bertolucci in some ways. Scorsese, Spielberg, Coppola, they're watching these films. And right. You can feel all those American directors thinking, OK, so you can make a film like this. And, of course, Godfather 2 has the same actor that plays the cop, and the storytelling is really non-linear, like this film. Mm. And it leaves a kind of hypnotic, hallucinatory feeling after you've seen it, because you think hang on, did I dream that thing? Or did that actually happen in the film? So it affects you in a very visceral, mysterious way as an artwork. And I can't really reference that kind of auteurism now. I mm. mean, I'm, it's probably just been assimilated in the culture. Although when I watched your directorial debut, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, it felt like it had some of the visual majesty as you looked at the landscape and you gave time and real care in terms of the colour palette and the interiors. So I don't know whether you watched it again as part of your prep or what, but it was like a good source to be drawing from. Totally. I think the, the level of craft that is reached by Bertolucci in the film is something that I absolutely aspire to and want to put into everything that I create because I think that there's a moment as you sort of cross the Rubicon, you know, where 
the audience falls into the film, that they just slip into it. And I think that some artists, some directors are really able to create that environment, whereas an audience at a certain point, you just surrender to the vision of this piece of work and you allow it to, to take you where it's going to take you, almost as if it is really actually just unfolding in real time. You know? And it's a very special thing that very, very few filmmakers are able to create that kind of environment for an audience. And, and I think there is something about a director who is taking care of the audience you know, taking care of the story, but taking care of the audience in this really deep and considered way. Just to be very much in control of what the audience sees, how the audience feels, how the audience gets into the mindset of this very deeply complicated uh, and troubled lead character in this case. Yeah. So like the childhood music, the director, adult director, Chiwetel, chooses a series of mentors, influences to help him create his own distinctive work. And your film seems to me so single-minded and uncompromising and beautifully accessible but uncommercial in terms of taking the viewer completely into a vivid emergency with the economic an environmental catastrophe in Malawi, yet it's so resplendent with beauty. I don't really know how you pulled that off, and I don't know how you learnt that language and acted in it as well. I mean, it just seems to me a Herculean feat. So congratulations. Thank you, thank you. It's sort of one of those processes that is that sort of journey of a thousand miles begins with a step, that you just take each piece of it as it comes, you know, and it started with the... The writing of it in its entirety, the adaptation from the book, going to Malawi, spending a lot of time going back and forth. And then in the filmmaking process of really bringing people in to collaborate on the film that were, you know, just incredibly strong and sat within the vision that I had for it. The first person that I spoke to was Tule Peak, who is a production designer uh, in Brazil. And his film that had also influenced me very deeply was City of God. And I think City of God was the first time that I was fully aware of production design in, in film, you know, that I felt that there was something about the way that film looked that was both heightened, but gave me the feeling of really being there, you know, that it was cinematic on a large scale, but it also made you feel that you were right in the centre of that story. And so, and that was, for me, very critical for the film, for The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, to have that feeling for the audience. And so... Everything else was sort of layered on top of that, if you like. So then that's what having the language and trying to make the film as authentic as possible and having that feel of Chichuan and, um so that people can really sit in its authenticity in a slightly different way than if you were sort of taken out by the hearing English in the village. I feel like there was another level to reach. And so everything was geared towards that. And obviously then comes the decision, will I actually have to learn that language if I'm going to do it? And then that, again, is just day by day. You're sort of learning more of the language through the prep period for the film and, you know, doing classes in Chichua at the same time and, and eventually kind of getting there with other members of the cast and also they were cast from Malawi who were helping and various other people who were coming in to work on it as well. So 
it was always that sort of process. You know, I think that's the crucial thing, that there was just so many wonderful collaborators on that film. When you remember that and you think back to learning the violin, which is such a difficult instrument for 12 Years a Slave or the weight loss also in that film or learning a new language. Do your creative juices remember that with real joy, like, great, I can do that, I will do that again? Or does it feel daunting? Because the literal amount of hours that must take whilst preparing a film to do all those other things must be phenomenal. It was very challenging. (laughs) Well, you did it. (laughs) Yeah, it was very challenging. But um, one of the things that I've always loved about acting is that capacity, you know, that, that you grow in that capacity to pick up things and intensely look at them for a short period of time to try and get a sense of them, and then you put them away. That is part of the skill set, you know. That that is part of what you learn as an actor, is that you have to be able to do that. You have to be able to jump into something. You know, I did a David Mamet film called Red Belt. And, um, I remember. And doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu and just really so intensely doing it. And I fell madly in love with Brazilian jiu-jitsu for that period of time. And, you know, I wasn't ever a Brazilian jiu-jitsu master. You know, I could probably handle myself if you attacked me in the correct sequence of moves. But <laughs> outside of that, it would be quite difficult. But really learning and deeply understanding something and really getting a huge amount from it and then being able to move on to something else, you know, is a real gift. It's, it's one of the things I feel most fortunate for and about yeah. within the profession is that uh, it's allowed me the capacity to see into all these different rooms. Going back to... The Conformist in 1970. You talked about Bertolucci's ability to create a kind of surrender in the viewer and that he's looking after you. But on the other hand, he's quite provocative because you couldn't get more anti-hero than the main protagonist of the film, who we see through his sort of failed attachment with his mother through the encounter we see with his father, that there's this vacuity and numbness that leads to this longing to belong. And the film's set in the 1930s, time of Mussolini, and he's easily recruited to be a fascist. And it's interesting to ask you, do you feel empathy for this character? Because I think for me, the other great set piece of the film when the main actor, Jean-Louis Trintignant, is at this bar in Paris and all of these people are so exuberantly dancing and he's cradled in the middle, stiff, with his arms around himself, unable to move. Mm. Incredible portraits of a kind of trauma-induced numbness that's... Well, I, I mean, talking about now, I feel there's a sort of tragedy there. Totally. I think it's one of the things that I think the film captures incredibly well and why I think it's so successful is because it is a difficult hero, an anti-hero, and um, he is somebody who has totally become what he beheld. Everything he is is what he actually, in some part of himself, hates. And at this sort of epilogue, in a way, of the film, you know, after the war and after the fascists have lost, you know, he is screaming at somebody and calling them by way of attacking them, all of the things that he is, calling him a fascist, attacking his sexuality, attacking what he's done, that he's an assassin, and all of these things, but they're all him. He is really screaming at the mirror, and I feel that 
there was something that is beautifully constructed in the film about that. And it's also something that I think is very true of the experience of trauma and the experience of how we all operate to some degree, how we all punish ourselves to some degree, you know. Sometimes for very good reasons we punish ourselves, sometimes for not very good reasons, but in a way what the film is sort of talking to is that it's irrelevant how we, where we condition the reasons. What we have to analyse is the person underneath that, their relationship to themselves, and sometimes where that comes from. And that's why I think somebody in the 1970s looking at the 1930s, that sort of 40-year lens is actually a really good way, just a really a strong generational jump to look at certain issues. Traumas of countries, obviously, but also traumas of individuals. You know, we all know the ending, in a sense. You know, we know which side wins the war, but he places us within the mind and within the context of somebody who hasn't access to that and is trying to make decisions whilst turning over the pages of the book of their life, you know, as we all are. And that is powerful. And it's powerful to do it in that context. It's powerful to know somebody is wrong and to see them make bad decisions, but to some degree understand what is motivating all of those bad decisions. It empowers you, I think, for making decisions yourself and going into your life and trying to make, hopefully, better decisions. But that sort of attack on intellectual thought, on freedom, on all of this stuff, you know, the idea that somebody is hired to assassinate their professor who is anti-fascist and they are now recruited into the secret police, the fascist, Mussolini's fascist police, and they are going to kill their former teacher is, is just a kind of extraordinarily brilliant premise about being anti-intellectual and this whole... I have to look at it as well in the times that we live in and, and the pressure that is on freedom of thought and intellectualism in that sense and and the way that populist movements try to push things into very simplified avenues and how that's just the lasting legacy in a way for me, the lasting legacy of the neoliberal way of thinking that became so popular when I was young in the 80s and just took over and talk about looking back 40 years, looking back 30, 40 years and seeing where that has led to. I think it's incredibly powerful what Bersalucci is doing with that and those kind of mirrors, and I feel like we can absolutely reflect that in our own times. That's a dazzling riff on the film, and it got me to take a book off my shelf, Into That Darkness by Gita Sereny, where she interviews this guy, Stangle, who ran a concentration camp. Mm. And it was such a good accompaniment to the film because... She writes about these Nazis as loners who had a failure of empathy because of their early relationships with their parents and terrible lack of belonging. And what is fascism other than a massive collective failure of empathy? Mm. And the film has that narrative in a very subtle way for you to draw from. And I love the way you apply it to where we are now as a kind of riposte to neoliberalism and also in a sort of spiritual sense about actually what we need is love connection, good attachment, meaning. <sighs> Did you feel ever a pressure to conform? The film is called The Conformist. Your parents worked hard to send you to Dulwich College and I imagine there was a lot of conformity there. And did you go with that flow and conform with your tie on and your blazer? Or did you feel... Like, you wanted to push against that pressure to conform. 
Well, that's great. I mean, that's a great question. I think that I um, would conform to some degree, but I conformed within the context of thinking, but this is just a temporary situation. I'll just conform to this bit of this, and then I get past it. And then, you know, later on, as I started to make slightly more individual decisions and feel slightly more empowered in my decisions, it was something that I... I mean, I don't want to say regretted, but I definitely felt that I could have begun that process a bit earlier of establishing the things that I really felt were important to me and then pursued those things with a slightly greater degree of vigor. But that's part of the experience. And I think it is part of the pressure that society holds us in, you know, that people are put under this enormous pressure to conform to things, to conform to circumstances or given two bad options you know and being told that those are the options and not being allowed to really push in different directions and really find what else is there and to kind of open the windows and those are very carefully constructed structures and systems that we're sort of allowed into and to play in a very kind of limited playpen so yes I think that there was an element of conformity there was an element of wanting eventually to break free of that to push past that but yeah I think that I always envied people who from a younger age were just more aware of themselves were more aware of their individuality than I was were more aware that they were permitted to push the rules that that wasn't just a kind of entitlement that that was a sense of like having to test systems you know, and sometimes wearing the blazer and the tie isn't actually good either for you or for the system in general because you've got Forest Gate in Hackney, which is one very particular world, and then Dulwich College. And I imagine conforming fully would have meant you were now working in finance or medicine, but you didn't. And somehow in this podcast we're talking about art, art got you out of conformity, didn't it? Yeah. It stopped you from going down those rat runs into government or I mean I don't really have a view on Dulwich College but it creates some of the key privileged figures of the United Kingdom doesn't it sure and somehow through acting playing getting back to some of the spirit you talked about early on in the podcast you became a non-conformist yeah I mean but that's the thing it's um because Dulwich offered that as well, you yeah. know, it offered that conformity, but also it had the Edward Alleyne Theatre, which was a fantastic theatre space to be in and to work in and, uh, and to start to fall in love with the theatre in. It has an incredible history, obviously, Edward Alleyne and Shakespeare plays and all of the Shakespeare players that lived in and worked in that area. And so there's all of this that is part of the experience of Dulwich College. And I can pinpoint the moment that my life changed essentially which was when I was maybe 13 14 and the teacher was reading Henry the fourth part one out loud and on Hal's speech a sort of awakening happened you know I suddenly understood what Hal was saying I understood the idea of sort of sitting in somewhere sitting in something waiting for the moment that the clouds break and you actually reveal whatever it is you're supposed to be and who you're supposed to be and all of these things, but you have to be confined into whatever this is until that point. And 
Hal is talking about that and then this belief that somehow he's going to break through these foul and ugly mists and become this other person. And I felt that I connected to what he was talking about. I felt like I connected to Shakespeare. I mean, up until that point, I was bored. You know, I was sort of staring out of the window on a wet Wednesday, you know, but suddenly I heard something that really connected to a deep part of where I was sitting in my own sense of self and my own relationship to myself and to what I felt were limitations and some of the limitations that I had put around myself and some of the limitations that I felt were just part of the bricks and mortar of society and culture. And I knew at that point that I wasn't alone in that thinking, you know, that these were expressed thoughts and they were profound and powerful. And so I went to the Edward Elaine Hall uh, and I, over a sequence of time, had enough sort of courage or whatever to audition for Measure for Measure. And for a while in that year, I definitely thought that I had discovered Shakespeare. Like, I thought that nobody else really had a clue about Shakespeare apart from me. And I was, at length, was going to tell people about it. But yes, I think that that did break me out of a sense of what it meant to conform within a certain conformity, but in a conformity that I understood more powerfully. Because when we started to put on those plays and to do the work we were doing, it meant bringing in the community. And so I would meet people and parents, obviously, of friends, and it opened up that idea of what it is to be part of a community, what role theatre plays in a community, what these conversations are. So I suppose it just opened up a different form of reality that I was much more excited about. You're refreshing the concept of conformity in a good way. And you could also say there was a belonging that you found in that flow state. And you talked about Il Conformista as having contemporary political resonance. And everything you said just then makes us think schools should have a much wider curriculum. They should be empowering kids to find themselves. The way you described that moment of surfing with the language... And we all need to fight to get that kind of progressive curriculum in all sorts of ways in our schools. I think that's exactly right. I think that if we are truly limiting people's potential, if they don't have real solid access to their creativity and the ability to be inspired by what is an extraordinarily rich creative history, you know, that really does connect and empower people in, I think, deeply profound ways. It also teaches you all sorts of things. It teaches you about empathy. You know, it teaches you how to relate. It teaches you about consequence. You know, I remember just when I was talking about Measure for Measure, I remember that being quite a profound experience for me when I was at school. I played Angelo in Measure for Measure, and, and I remembered coming away with the... Um, it's not the final lines of Angelo, but he says, when once our grace we have forgot, nothing goes right. We would and we would not. And I remember just being very young and thinking, wow, that's a really important lesson to learn somehow. Hidden in the text there, hidden in the meaning, is a very important life lesson that I would only really have been able to contact emotionally by being in this 
play, by being in this moment of having these dynamics play out in front of me, of using these very complex visualizations that you are utilizing as an actor in order to feel something that this character is feeling. And through that process, I'm able to have access to something that is very important that I, once I feel now, take away into the world and I can never unfeel, even though I've done none of the bad things that Angelo did. What's the line again? When once our grace we have forgot, nothing goes right. We would and we would not. Essentially just that sense of never knowing what the right thing is to do again, never being on sure foot and that if you abandon those kind of deep moral ethical codes that you have structured yourself around, then forevermore you are kind of lost in a wilderness of indecision. And I love that. I mean, well, it's like a comment on The Conformist. Exactly, yeah. And it seems like the language spoke you as much as you spoke the language when you were 15 and you did Angelo, mm. which is an incredible experience you can have, can't you, when you make creative work in the theatre or on screen. Totally. So there's this great thread of empathy, the dangers of detachment. When we come to your last offering, and I said, think of a poem, and you've offered Recitation mm. by Leonard Cohen. And we know from early Tale life that sometimes Leonard Cohen came on to the stereo. Mm. Um, what made this bubble up into an offering for us today? Well, I thought of a poem that has really connected to me and I really felt the profound emotion and, and I uh, really engaged with. And I actually saw Leonard Cohen deliver this. In, uh, I was in Las Vegas, of all places, and he was playing Vegas, which you wouldn't necessarily associate Leonard Cohen <laughs> as playing Vegas, but, uh, but he was very aware of how incongruous it was that he was in Vegas and he was, you know, and as he says, he, he sort of walked on stage and he said, why am I touring? You know, I was just another 73-year-old with a dream. <laughs> and then he launches into this poem, one single spotlight, his hat over his brow and, um, and it felt haunting and it felt wise it had a romance to it. It felt that it deeply understood some of the texture of relationship, you know, um, some of the emotion of relationship and love and the pain of it. And also it had an epic scale to it. So it just sort of transported me. It transported me out of, certainly out of Vegas, you know, which even Leonard Cohen on that occasion was saying when he talked about Vegas, he said, this place is so unmagical, but it's so much effort to make it so unmagical. And yet within a few lines of this poem, he took the audience into a completely different place, which again felt like a familiar place, like a place that you wanted to be and maybe had been some, at some point, the best of you, you know, a place for the best of you. And I guess that's what I've always loved about Leonard Cohen anyway. But in that moment, it felt very, very special to me. It's so generous-spirited in terms of what he's revealing about himself. And if we think about our protagonist in the film and even what Michael Kiwanuka is sharing in his poem, Leonard says, You see, I'm just another snowman standing in the rain and sleet who loved you with his frozen love. 
And the whole poem is this sort of summoning to Thor and distilling down to love and desire. And it's unashamed in that, isn't it? And the way he offers that to us. Yeah, and it's sort of... First of all, I think it's so powerful as an, as an image. As an image of something that is beautiful, that is optimistic, because I think of a snowman as something that is optimistic and hopeful and, and youthful in its own way, you know. But to be a snowman standing in the rain and sleet is, is very, it's a, it's a very specific time for a snowman, you know. It is that moment when it is all just going to fall away and to be kind of beaten and to be sloppy and sliding into nothingness, but still sort of offering love. It's a very Leonard Cohen sequence of images, and it really does speak to pain and beauty. But I also do take something away from that in terms of, I think there is a lightness to that. There is this kind of wonderful humor, and there's something about a sense of its patheticness, but its open patheticness that also makes it incredibly endearing. And that is somewhere where he kind of lives, that it's almost that the love is for that quality as well as anything else. And and the fact that it's contextualized with a sly humor is really that he knows that. He knows that his self-effacing nature of this kind of giving, of this love, is also the part of him that is the thing that everybody falls in love with, you know. Yeah, you can feel like all of his work gets distilled down to this simplicity to do with the heart and the spirit of Eros. Mm. And I was thinking what other artists in music have that confidence, actually. I mean, to really get libido and love as unashamedly as he does. And I've seen him do it live as well. It's so shamanic, actually, mm. as an offering, isn't it, to, you know, 2,000 people in Vegas or whatever. Um, feels so bold. I don't know if many other people do it. I don't know if many other people could to that degree. I mean, you know, because I think that there was something about Leonard Cohen where at the centre of it, he obviously felt that there were a ton of mistakes that he'd made, hundreds of millions of mistakes that he'd made. But he had made mistakes with a purity of rationale, with a desire to really connect with sort of human principles that were distilled and kind of simplified and therefore pure in their own way. And, um, and I feel like that, exactly as you say, when it's sort of boiled down, that distilled quality is what you really receive from him. Um, but that's what I love about it. You came to me this morning and you handled me like meat, you know, which I remember just thinking... As an opening, it's so full on. And then to undercut it by saying you'd have to be a man to know how good that feels is wonderful, you know. Can I hear just a bit of it? Oh, sure. It's, it's, uh, yeah. You came to me this morning and you handled me like meat. You'd have to be a man to know how good that feels. How sweet. My mirror twin, my next of kin, I'd know you in my sleep. And who but you would take me in? a thousand kisses deep. I loved you when you opened like a lily in the heat. You see, I'm just another snowman standing in the rain and sleet who loved you with his frozen love, his second-hand physique, with all he is and all he was, a thousand kisses deep. It's yeah. great, isn't it? It's fabulous, yeah. 
Do you think your dad would have liked that one? <laughs> I think he would have loved it, yeah. Because there's a lovely full circle, isn't there, through the work. It feels like, I don't know how aware you were of the congregation of the three things you've brought in today, but they're all offerings to humanity to love, to feel, to connect. Yeah. And what could be more important than that? Yeah. Thanks, Chiwetel. Pleasure. I Thank so you. enjoyed that. I feel really charged up with it, actually, and quite optimistic, fed. Great. By the way you've offered those things, the way you've shared your own connection to them, and it's really special. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. What I Love was created and hosted by me, Ian Rickson. The theme music is by PJ Harvey. This episode was recorded at the Young Vic Theatre and is produced by Sarah Murray for Storyglass. And during our conversation, Chiwetel and I discussed the song Love and Hate by Michael Kiwanuka on Polydor Records, the film Il Conformista, directed by Bernardo Bertolucci, produced by Mars Film, Marianne Productions and Maran Films, and the poem Recitation by Leonard Cohen as read on his album, Live in London, on Columbia Records. Thank you so much, and see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.